So, friends, tonight we are reaching these closing verses of Hebrews, and we are going to survey some of these practical concerns and applications that the word that the author actually highlights here for us. It's a concluding counsel applied, but of substantial import to our Christian living, isn't it? And I think for the benefit of those who have not been here before when we were preaching through Hebrews, or who have not the context of this passage clear and fresh in their minds, I will try to give you an oversimplified overview, if I may say something like that. So the the book of Hebrews, the main thrust, or the main theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ and his works, and how that should bring us faith in how that affects our living. Um, it starts then with the, the, the praise of the deity of Christ of, in his revelation, rendering him with such wonderful words, calling Christ as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's uh, image. That's wonderful. But then he continues to show the superiority of Christ. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's actually a, a high priest as well, but he's a high priest of a higher order, this order of this uh, figure called Melchizedek. But he's actually superior to Melchizedek as well. Uh, then he goes on, says that Christ is actually a mediator of a better covenant, and a much better covenant. Then it goes on to say that for us to have to, to come to grasp with, with that reality, we need to have faith. And he goes through the heroes of faith. He goes through a list of martyrs in the history of uh, Christianity, and actually shows Christ as the perfecter of our faith. And that despite many troubles and tribulations, we always have assurance and find reason to be assured by him that we never should grow weary, that we should never turn away of our faith, that we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that's part of the, the context that we, we get here. Uh, so we had the chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, and we have chapter 12 talking about the Mount Zion, the Mount Sinai, and if, if you check with me the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, you see that chapter 13 emerges almost abruptly in this series of pastoral um, exhortations. And you see how they are thrown in a very uh, fast manner. So with that said, um, I would like to, for us to explore, to assess this, um, exor- this series of exhortations here and try to answer the question, how can I, or how can we, please God? And if I could jump the gun just a little bit and think about this question, how can I, please God, I, I would definitely think about the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who was actually a great opponent of Christianity in many ways, but I think in some ways he had a very great insight into the human mind. And he is quoted saying one thing, that he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. So he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. So perhaps the way to tackle this question of how can I please God is by first thinking why. Why should we please God? Why do we have this desire to please God? Why? Why evokes purpose, evokes reason? And if you think of purpose, I would ask you another question. 
Is your purpose to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? If you, if you answer positively to this question, I would say it's possibly, it's definitely possibly that you want to satisfy God because you have faith in Him. That's a good thing. Because God is most satisfied when we are most glorified in Him. John Piper said that, quotations everywhere. So, you have faith, that's a good thing. But that's not all. Here's the thing that might sound a little bit controversial, because it's not the merely possession of faith that pleases God. There comes implications with it. And I think this chapter helps us to unpack that a, a, a little bit. With faith, what are the implications that we have that we should live lives that are honorable and pleasing lives according to the faith that we have? And this chapter flows really, really fast. You see there's one thing after another, and sometimes things might appear a, a little bit loose, but I, I think we try to get the, the, the thrust of, of and the connection between uh, these verses. But as we go through these verses, I would like you to keep two things in your mind, two things. So we, we've seen that uh, the author has shown the superiority of Christ, right? So the... As we see something that is superior, that is grand, that is um, that we are to devote ourselves in contemplating that, that brings us to the theme of worship. So Christ is superior. We are to have faith, so we are to worship him. So worship is one of the themes that I would like you to keep at the back of your mind. The second theme is that all of these... Um, Practice uh, and examples and illustrations in this series of instructions that he gives, they are given against the backdrop of Jewish practices. So sometimes we need to uh, see that example through those lenses. That said, I would say that we believe we could group these uh, instructions here in perhaps two different groups, two different principles, guiding principles to our lives. I think the first one would be that as Christians, we are to be loving. We are to be loving. Do you see this theme as we explore verses 1 to 6, that the theme of love is constantly coming back? And I don't think we could, or we could hardly underestimate that this appears first in this list of instructions, for love is something essential to Christian living. Christians back then and Christians now definitely know and that they are characterized by the love that we show to one another, the love that we show to others, the love that we show to our family, and the love that we show to God. So let's see how, how this is actually explored. So if you see in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. So the love between us in the midst of our church, it's extremely important. It's indispensable. It's it's. It's absolutely necessary. We see in Matthew 5, 23, that uh, God will refuse to accept your professed service if you have a grudge against your brother. We don't have much information with respect to that particular um, community, say whether they were actually struggling with some rivalries or with some dissensions. Uh, but one thing that we know that appears quite clear in the text that perhaps people were losing faith, there was some false teaching involved, and imagine the sort of tension that was going on in that church. 
And the author says here, our love must go on. Let brotherly love continue. And perhaps that sounds a bit too vague, because even if we try to apply, you say, oh, but I love everyone here, and they probably love. But this big loving principle that we're saying here is, is not concerned mostly with a pious emotion, you know, against one another, but it's actually very practical in its expression. So when he says, be loving, when he says, let brotherly continue, he actually has in mind some practical implications of that love. And that actually extends into verses uh, 2 and 3. So in one way that this brotherly love will continue and may continue is when we not only love one another, but when we actually love visitors. Do not neglect to show hospitality. If you think about that context back then, the display of hospitality was quite important. Imagine Christians being persecuted, as we are showed here in this text, and inns and hotels, if I may say, at that point, were very, very expensive. Not only expensive, they were very anti-hygienic. And, uh, you know, the standards, the, the moral standards were quite low. It was no place for a Christian to be. So it was actually very important for other Christians to show hospitality to travelers, to foreigners. And we can, I think, easily uh, apply that to our congregation as well as we think how multicultural we, we are in that sense. But there's other nuances to that because so we are to show love to to our congregation, to our immediate brothers, to visitors, those who are passing by, but also to prisoners. And it might sound a little bit strange when he says, remember those who are in prison. And some people have even used this verse to sponsor uh, the practice of evangelism in penitentiaries. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a highly commendable practice, but it's not exactly the point of, uh, in the context of this passage is actually when we are talking about um, remember those who are in prison we are talking about Christians persecuted, being tortured and thrown into prison there that we are to remember them as if we are suffering with them as if we were and we actually are one body think about your body think about if you hurt your feet you definitely use all the resources of the body to take care of their feet wouldn't you? So that's the sort of feeling that we, we have to have this unity as we sang in Psalm 133. So we are to show love to our immediate brothers, to those who are passing by. We are to go and show love to others as well. And then I think that creates a connection to, to verse 4 when it says, Let marriage be held in honor. Let marriage be held in honor. So we are to show this love amongst us, but also in our private life, in our family life. And there has actually a public connection as well, because there's a warning here. There's this different nuance, because there's a warning for purity when he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled from both adultery and fornication. So yes, in a, in a very clear sense, he says that we should be we, we, we must avoid uh, sex before marriage, and we must avoid to uh, betray our spouses. Yes, but there's even something beyond that, because the conduct in our marriage, the way that we conduct our marriages, actually have a, has this very public display 
witness our relationship uh, that we have with Christ. And it, I think it's especially actual when we think about today, where fornication, we live in such a sensualized society when fornication is almost stimulated and adultery is just another line in the news, isn't it? Like people love to read about these things. We, we have a strong warning here. These things in our society today, they might go unpunished, but God will not leave these things unpunished. He will judge it at the appointed time. So I think the, the takeaway lesson in, in, in this part is for us to avoid, uh, avoid these wrong places of fornication and adultery. Let's let our marriage beds be undefiled. Let, let, let us have our premarital relationships pure and let us love our spouses with the same zeal with which Christ has loved his bride. And then he goes on to talk also now about love of money. Keep your life from love of money. And I think for, for some, it might appear a bit disjointed. Well, he's talking about marriage and now he's talking about uh, money. But uh, perhaps for our uh, context, it appears very, very uh, current. Because if you look um, in the news or elsewhere... The reasons for divorce, the, I think the top le- reasons for divorce is definitely adultery or financial discussions and battles in tribunals. So that's definitely quite actual. Elsewhere in the letter, the, the author actually commended these Hebrew Christians here for their selfless uh, approach that they have to material things. And that's actually quite interesting because, remember, these Jews were being persecuted, being plundered, they were being uh, tortured, they were, they, they were having uh, their possessions taken away from them. So when he says here, be content with what you have, has a, has a very, uh, in, I think, deep meaning for those Christians. But it can also be applied to us because... If you think about the principle, why, why do we love money? Why, why, why does he say here that we should be keeping ourselves from the love of money? It's not, it's not a problem with money itself. Money itself is just paper. Think with me. If, well, it's paper or numbers printed in paper, or sometimes figures on, on a screen of a, uh, of a cell phone. Or, People love money because they love what money can buy. People love money because money can buy a house, can buy a car. People love money because money can bring them a sense of assurance, an appearance of assurance, an appearance of power that comes with that. And then you have this sense of self-sufficiency. And then you become dependent on it, isn't it? Think about when you have money in your account, you think... Okay, I'm okay. I, my bills are paid. But, but that's what, one of the guiding principles here that we must uh, be aware of because we are reminded that God is and must be our sole provider. We must rest assured, not that we have money into our accounts, but we must rest assured because we have a God who will provide for all of our needs that he will never 
leave or forsake us. And uh, we're going through Hebrews in, in, in our Bible studies at home. And actually in the Greek of this passage, when, when he says that he will never uh, leave or forsake us, there's actually five, five negative words there. It's almost as it says, he never, 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 never leave you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Never. It's very strong in that sense. So we are assured that God will be our provider. So what our response then? The response should be that we sh- if he is always with us, we should never fear. We should never fear material pressures. We should never fear man as well. As we read elsewhere, love casts out fear, dries out fear. That's very encouraging. So that's the, the first theme of this series of instructions. That will be the principle that we are to be loving. We are to be loving, but also, if you see from verses 7 to 19, in a sense, we are to be loyal. So we are to be loving, but we are to be loyal. And we are to be loyal to our leaders. We are to be loyal to the teaching that we receive. And we are to be loyal, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. In what senses can we be loyal to our leaders? So in at least two senses or three, we may stretch, he says here, remember your leaders, those who spoke you the word of God. Perhaps in remembering others who have lived the faith, the readers here will actually be um, encouraged to remember how they express this love, how they live their lives, and the author here invites them to follow the example, to imitate the example. And this is most likely referring to leaders that have passed away, for he uses the word outcome. And then also there's a distinction and a repetition that appears in the culture on current leaders, as we see in verse 17. So we see that he, he mentioned leaders twice. He, he mentions to remember leaders and to obey leaders. So it's a, it's a, it's a double uh, uh, application there. And he also, verses 18, he actually, for the first time in the letter, he mentions himself in calling us to be loyal in service. So we are to be loyal in service, to in submission and in prayer. Be loyal to the leaders of the past. Be loyal to the leaders of now. And remember those who have demonstrated this zeal for God, for this passion for God, consider them, imitate them. It's only when we think, isn't that in, in our, I think in our personal lives, when you think about our Christian world, when you think about how we, we, we came uh, to our current stage in our spiritual living, when we think about you know, those people in the past who really exert an influence in our lives, it, don't we think that it's just the passion, those who have a very great passion for Christ, who could actually ignite and fund the flames of our passions for Christ as well? So I think that's what he's reiterating here. So we are to be loyal to our leaders. We are also to be loyal to the sound teaching of scriptures. And I think the hinge that actually connects and flows uh, the, the flow of, of this argument here is the verse that I think is probably the most famous verse in, in, 
in this epistle, in this whole book, which is verse 8, when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, his teaching is the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus Christ is, even because he is the same, teaching is the same, we are to be um, aware of what is diverse, what is strange to, to this teaching. And that's why he also has this injunction there. And in that case, in this particular case of these Hebrews there, was probably some Judaizers there with these common discussions about dietary laws or food restrictions um, of one kind or of another. We, we are not to, to go into, into that at the moment because I think there's a, a greater reminder for us here, which is the simplicity of the gospel. With that message, with these discussions about genealogies and about laws about food, we actually have the, a gospel that the core message is very simple, is that Christ has died for our sins. This must be of central importance to our faith, that we ascribe to him loyalty, loyalty to Christ, that we would follow his footsteps in his humiliation. As we see here, as he goes out of the gate, he goes out of the city, and then we should follow him as well. And that brings us to this last point in a sense of we are to be loyal to Christ. We are to be loyal to Jesus so make no mistake, friends, to be loyal to Christ, to follow him in this world will lead you to humiliation. Some degree of humiliation in your Christian living you have to endure. For the message is foolishness to this world. But for us who are being saved is the power of God. For us who are being saved is the power of God. Jesus Christ is the channel of salvation. The only way to God, the only way that our hearts are upheld, are fed, are nourished solely by his saving grace. When we see this message here, when and we see Jesus Christ going outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. So when we see that, and perhaps some of us are a bit reticent in following him, but we are to perhaps don't want to leave the protection of the city walls, the protection of our lives, the protection of a place where we are not rebuked, where we are not mocked, we are not ridiculed for our faith. But uh, the calling here is that we look not for the city. We don't look to London. We look for the lasting city. We look for the heavenly Jerusalem. We don't look to the city of our comfort in our lives. We look to our praise, eternal praise before God. We are citizens of the kingdom of King Jesus. And we humbly swear loyalty to our king. We will fight the battles that he wants us to fight. And we will praise him continually, won't we? Will you? Will you praise Christ continually? 
Is that what's burning in your heart right now? Do you want to please God? Do you want to know how can you please God? If that sort of question bothers you, and if it moves you in any sense, it is because you love him. If you are appalled and indifferent to these questions, you should search your heart. You should search about your love for Christ. Because if you love him, you would like to please him. If you love him, it's because he loved you first. And we are to respond to this love call with loyalty. Then, I think, in closing, two things will follow. First, and I think, if you love him, you'll be worshipping him. You'll be worshipping him for what he has done for you. you acknowledge uh, him and you will praise him. And second, you will be grateful. And in being grateful, you'll you be brought to a place where you want to show this gratitude. Because gratitude has this uh, intrinsic sense in which when you are grateful, you show gratitude. It's almost impossible to be grateful and not show it. So, in a sense that this uh, text helps us is you want to know how to show your gratitude. Do these practical things and that's a very good start. Not in a ritualistic or in an empty and void manner, but actually cheerfully and hopefully. Let's enjoy God forever. You do, and then he goes on when he says, do not neglect to do good, so you will do good and will share what you have. For your love is not in the things, so you are free to share. And you know that he has given you much more. So do you want to please God? I'll ask again. Do you want to know what pleases him? He has told you, oh man, we read in Micah, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's key, I think. Walk with God. Martin Luther, another German here tonight, um, he understood that we should be living our lives, what he calls quorum del, quorum del before God or in the sight of God. We should live our lives Always before God, in a private life, in a public life, we should always live as if God, and He actually is, watching us closely. And that would have a, a deep um, impact in the way that our, the integrity of our character is shown. So live your lives, Coromdale, before God. Of course, I think uh, maybe it's a kind of uh, white elephant uh, in the room, because people always say, okay, this is all nice, I knew all of this, this is n- no shocking news, but this is very difficult, nobody does that. Is that what you're thinking? Well, I'll reassure you that that's definitely true. Well, we will try this and we will fail, but what's really important is to keep exercising these spiritual skills until you reach maturity. And every time that you reach that plateau, you reach that point of paralysis, what actually makes the Christian life living the most beautiful thing is that you can rely on the power of God to break through that, to press violently, you know, against that 
uh, stage of paralysis and remember your first love and love him forever. Now, I would like to speak also to others. Perhaps this is mostly uh, a Christian talk, if I may say, a Christian message, a Christian sermon. But I would like to speak to those who do not want to please him, or maybe that message didn't fit quite well your way of life. And maybe you take lightly the instructions that are given here, him. Maybe you don't see the superiority of Christ. Maybe you don't worship him. You don't want to be loving or you don't want to be loyal. I think this image here that we have is quite, it's quite beautiful in a sense, but it's a, it's a great warning in other sense. We see Christ leaving the city. When Christ leaves the city, that city, those who stay in that city, those who do not follow his footsteps, they are left there for judgment. Perhaps you, pref- you prefer the protection of the city walls, of your self-determination, of your money, and you are loyal only to yourself. You want to please yourself. So let me remind you that Jesus has gone out of the city and in your estrangement and alienation, only judgment will come. I hope you take heed of this troubling warning and follow Jesus before that gate closes. And that the sweetness of his love and loyalty to his people will follow into your life. That's what we pray. Amen. Let's pray.